that, that was really good, everyone. You guys did a really good job. I was, all of a sudden, hear like a countdown, and then I just hear people like, shh, there's like a hush that falls over the room. Um, well, good to see you all. Uh, thank you all for being here this morning, and um, we're excited for, for what God has in store for us today. Uh, I mentioned this probably a couple months ago, that every once in a while, uh, there will be a Sunday morning in which I will uh, pull up a chair and do a little bit more of um, teaching and diving into some more content. Um, and so uh, you won't see me walking around quite as much. Unfortunately, I probably won't hit my 10,000 steps on Sunday because usually that's the day I just blow it out of the water because I stand and walk around too much during sermons. But today, I will probably not uh, do that. But what I want to just Um, signal to you guys is that uh, today we'll be talking about a topic that uh, might make some people feel a little uneasy. We're talking about conflict. And so just even hearing that word might uh, raise some walls or cause some concerns. Just know that you're in a safe place and and don't feel uh, concerned about that. We're just going to dive into uh, a topic that maybe we don't talk about too much, but um, maybe in the church we should. And so we're going to dive into that a little bit. But before we do, I want to take a couple moments just to revisit visit where we've been in this series through the book of Acts. And so uh, as if you've been here with us for a little while, you know we spent the first uh, five weeks of our um, We Are the Church series in Acts 1 through 4. And so then, since then, we've been in Acts 5 looking at Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and that day is when we learned the idea that there's no sin so small that's beyond God's justice, but there's also no sin so big that is beyond God's grace. The next week, uh, we had Dan share with us and his, his sharing this idea of Stephen uh, in Acts 7 and the crowd and the, the dynamic there. And so we talked about the idea that the temptation will always be to follow the crowd. But when tempted to follow the crowd, or tempted by the crowd, I'm sorry, yield to the spirit. And so how Stephen didn't need to, to follow the crowd, he yielded to the spirit and became an amazing witness and the first martyr in the church. Then we looked at, Pastor Evan shared um, a couple, the next week after that, week three, and he shared about transition, says we are all in transition. Some may be terrific, others may be terrifying, but if we let God take charge, we will thrive. And trusting God in the midst of transition, and, and he looked at Acts chapter eight and the transition of the church with Philip reaching out to, uh, in Samaria and speaking to the Ethiopian and how that changed the dynamic of the church and reaching out to the Gentiles. And then last week, um, I hit on the idea of Peter and Cornelius, and we looked at this main point that in order to reach those on the outside looking in, God has to change us from the inside out. And recognizing that for many of us, there are ways in which maybe we we try to separate ourselves because people are, we are the clean ones and everybody else is unclean. We looked at that word clean there. Or the idea that we look at other people, we don't recognize their value um, because they don't consider the same things, believe the same things, say the same things, do the same things um, as us. And so then we say, oh, they're, they're common, they're impure, they're different. But recognizing that people aren't common because people matter to God. And so no matter where people are coming from, what their stories are, Every person that we have locked eyes with in our lives is someone who's been created by God that Jesus died for and the Holy Spirit may want to use you to reach. And so just recognizing the value of people and really highlighting and emphasizing our need to maybe break down our walls like Peter did and recognize that it's about people and and not worry about being right, but worry more about loving people. 
So that's where we've been the past few weeks. We're going to dive into conflict, which is so exciting. Uh, But before we do, let's dive into uh, a moment of prayer together. Father, we thank you that you are good. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the series in the book of Acts and how uh, stories of people thousands of years ago are just so applicable to us, Lord. And, and so, God, I pray that as we open up your word, as we look at Acts 15 in a chapter that is ripe with conflict, I pray, Lord, that as we dive into that, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a powerful, personal, and impactful way to each and every person that is here listening or listening online later. And I pray, God, that you would just work uh, and, and open up our eyes to what it means to truly be peacemakers in, in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we start off uh, in this idea of conflict, you know, there was uh, a time in which um, Steph and I were working in the youth ministry at our previous church, and um, we had, you know, great group. We had the same group of kids for several years where uh, she and I led a small group, a co-ed small group together for three years, and then we split up um, and did guys and girls, and we did that for another three years, and no, the kids weren't in high school for six years. They rotated, but this idea of just having these consistent groups, and, um, and it was great, and so we really loved that part of the ministry, and um, there were also times in which uh, we would have some really difficult conversations, and, and there was one specific student who she came from a really uh, rough background. She, um, she had uh, blindness in, in her eyes, and so she was, she was only able to see partially, and, and she would lash out because feeling ignored or feeling unloved or feeling rejected and, and all these different things. And we would try to reach out. Uh, Steph would, I would. And if you're like this girl, and, and if you're like me, sometimes when we're, we're feeling down, we lash out to the people that are closest to us, right? We look at the people that are nearest because they're the ones that we can actually reach with our lashing out. And so she would lash out at us or get upset with us. And it culminated with uh, the last summer camp that Steph ever went to as part of the youth ministry because the next year uh, she got pregnant with Shaylin. But that last summer camp was in 2010 for her. And it was really rough because um, this, this girl, she just had such a hard time. She was having such a struggle and we had to, she got hurt. So we tried to take her to the emergency room. And while we were there, she was just yelling at other patients and having this difficult time and getting mad at us. And I'm like, I just want to go home. Like, okay, well, we need to get through this. And then we can, you can go home if you want. But just walking through this moment of conflict. And I've grown up as someone who did not enjoy conflict. And I struggled with conflict. And so this, this would raise up this difficult tension within me because I knew that there was a way to walk alongside with her, but, but I also knew that I hated conflict. And that goes back into my story and my history, and we'll, we'll dive into that for a little bit. But I wonder, before we go into the conclusion of this story, I wonder if there's other people in this room that you can relate to this idea of conflict. Maybe you are someone that is in the middle of being lashed out against by those close to you. Maybe you're the one that's doing the lashing out and and you don't even know it. Maybe you're the one lashing out and you do know it, and yet you're not able to stop, or you feel like you can't stop. Maybe you're someone that has conflict at work. I I looked up some statistics, and 10 years ago, 2008, employees spent 2.8 hours per week in conflict. I imagine they put that in their Google calendar. Like they just put like 2.8 hours. We'll just send an invitation to someone we want to conflict with. Um, That's not true either. Conflict costs 
$359 billion in paid hours, which is like 385 million work days. That's how much time people in the, were, were spending conflict in the workplace. 25% of employees would avoid conflict by calling in sick or being absent. Or say, I just, I just don't even want to deal with this. I'm just going to stay home. And this was before Netflix. So that's impressive. Um, and then the majority of U.S. workers, employees, employers, have not received conflict management or conflict resolution training in the workplace. So those are just numbers and details that are related to work, let alone our family, let alone friends, let alone siblings, let alone whatever that may look like. And so this idea of conflict shows us that it's prevalent, that it's common. But our main point for today is that although conflict is common, our response to conflict must be uncommon. We must strive to be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. And so we're going to dive into that. We're going to leave that up for a moment. And like I said, I'm sitting down today because we've got a lot of uh, summary work to do in Acts 15 to get some context. We're going to have a lot of content in regards to taking notes. And so um, bear with me for the next 25, 30 minutes as we kind of go through things and, and we will be able to walk through this together. So with that setup being said, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. Um, the actual passage we will be in will be um, verse 36, which is on page 1718, 1718 in your uh, church Bible. But we're going to be in Acts 15, 36. But before we can even dive into that, I want to set this tone in the context of where we are looking and what's going on in Acts chapter 15 earlier, because there's a huge conflict within the church that the chapter goes for the first 35 verses addressing. And what's happening in this conflict that is going on between the church is that there are people who are saying um, that come from the party of the Pharisees or Jews, Jewish people who have been converted to Christianity are trying to say that any Gentile, remember we talked about clean and unclean, all these things last week, that any Gentile should get circumcised, should follow the, the law of Moses, that they had to basically become cultural Jews in order to become saved, born again Christians. And so this is the dilemma that came up. And so Paul and Barnabas are, are on their missionary journey. They've been going for a little while, and then they hear this saying, and they're the ones that are with the Gentiles, so they're saying, we need to get some clarity on this, and we need to be able to maybe provide the other view of this so that the church leadership in Jerusalem wouldn't be holding people away from Jesus by trying to force them to follow certain rules. And so we see this, that... Um, in verse 5 of Acts 15, the part of the Pharisees, they say things like, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. But then Peter shared his experience from last week that we talked about in Acts 10. It wasn't last week for him. But in Acts chapter 10 and 11, he shares the story of what happened when Cornelius called him in, that he had the vision, that he wasn't supposed to focus on what was clean or common, that God told him not to call any person clean or common that God had made. That he goes and he says, I shared with them. And then the Holy Spirit came down upon them, even though they were Gentiles. And he says this in verses 9 and 10 of Acts 15. He said that God did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? 
that he recognizes and he calls the Jewish people that have been converted to Christianity, he calls them to recognize that this burden of following the law of Moses was something that was never able to be done because none of us can follow the law perfectly. None of us can be made right and clean on our own. That that's why we need the altar of the brazen altar. That's why we need the golden altar of incense because we still have sin no matter how hard we try. So he's saying, we're starting anew. We're starting afresh. Why do we want to put the same yoke and burden upon these new converts that are Gentiles that we've had, that we've railed against, that's been difficult for us. So he's bringing this up. And then uh, we see that James the brother of Jesus comes up and in verse 19, he provides scriptural reference or scriptural support that God would allow the Gentiles to bear his name. That's a little bit earlier, actually. And then in verse 19, he says, he judged that we should not, quote, make it difficult for the Gentiles who were turning to God. So yes, he included four rules that they shouldn't do. And they sent out a letter and conflict was resolved healthily. And the church was changed because now people far from God were able to come near to God without following old rules, but following this new covenant of Jesus laying down his life for us. So that's all context work. And so this is where we pick up with Paul and Barnabas making this journey. And then now the resolve, the res resolution has happened. What they were hoping for to happen has happened. And now they're getting ready to go back into the missionary journey. So this is when verse 36 in Acts chapter 15 so sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The reason we bring this up is that verse seven, uh, 37, Barnabas, just so you guys know, Barnabas was John Mark's cousin. So he had a family relationship of why he wanted to hold on to, to John Mark and to encourage him and come alongside him. Verse 38, we see that Paul's referencing the fact that Mark, John Mark had deserted him. This is found in Acts chapter 13, verse 13, if you want to look it up later. This idea that they're going, they're sailing from Pamphylia, and then it just has this verse that says, and Mark left them to go back to Jerusalem. And that's all the Luke, the author of Acts, that's all he gives us about the conflict. There's plenty of uh, scholars and commentators who, who looked in and tried to figure out the nuances of why he left, what the reason was, but the scripture doesn't say, and so I'm not going to you know, say this must be it. There are different options, but the main point was that Mark, John Mark left when Paul and Barnabas needed him and went back to Jerusalem for whatever reason. So Paul says, no, he's, he can't come with us. He deserted us. He'll leave us again. He's not worthy or whatever. You want to fill in the gaps there. But in then verse 39, this is the last time when it says that uh, Barnabas and John Mark, they went to uh, Cyprus. This is the last time, at least in the book of Acts, that we hear of them. And so all of a sudden you see that 
This was such a sharp disagreement that in Acts chapter 13, it was known as Barnabas and Saul went out, that Barnabas was the leader of this missionary team. And then in Acts 13, it just kind of switches to say Saul, who was also called Paul. And from then on, Paul was the first one that was listed and Paul was the leader of the missionary journey. And so it went from Saul and Barnabas being prayed over, sent out by the leaders in the Jerusalem council at church, or in in Jerusalem, sent out to then being so sharply disagreeing with one another, having such a strong conflict that they say, we cannot even work together. That it's almost like they just called in sick and wanted to just be apart from each other. And so what is it about this response? What is it about this idea? Because Warren Wearsby in his commentary says, here were two dedicated men who had just helped bring unity to the whole church. And yet, They could not settle their own disagreements. That the whole church had been unified, yet the the people of the church can still be divided. So how can two godly people be in the midst of such a divisive conflict? Or, Or what can this story teach us about how we face conflict, what the common responses are within us, and what it looks like to have an uncommon response when conflict arises? Because as we've seen, we know that it will arise. So we can either call in sick or we could respond to the call to be peacemakers. So as we look here in the next part of your notes is this idea of the common responses to conflict. And this is where we're going we're gonna to write some notes relatively quickly. So we'll do our best to, to give you time to do that. But the first response that we often see is known by Jim Van Eyperen is, is an author that I read in my Aero Leadership Program. Uh, he presented there a fantastic book called Making Peace about church conflict. A lot of what I'm going to share today, I'm indebted to his research, his study, and this book. Um, So with that being said, what he terms first is the right-handed approach. He uses the idea that right hand is the one when we talk about, we we say the right hand of power, right? Right hand determines strength. So the right-handed approach in regards to conflict is one in which you emphasize truth over love. That you emphasize truth over love. That it matters less how a person's feeling, it matters more about the truth that has been broken. And so for some people, they come into that, and this is embodied in this section by Paul. Paul looks at this in Acts 15, and he says, listen, here's the truth. We can't trust him. He deserted us. And that, to him, that was the period at the end of John Mark's story. That, that it didn't allow necessarily for the space in which, for growth, for repentance, for moving forward. He just said, nope, he can't do it. Here's the truth without necessarily seeing the other side of what God could still do in John Mark's life. Now, for some of us, this is who we are. We are people who we emphasize truthfulness at the expense of a relationship. We say, I'm just going to tell the truth. And if that means that they don't like me anymore, if that means that there's a break in our relationship, then that's okay because truth is what reigns supreme. Truth is most important. And so People who have the right-handed approach to conflict, who emphasize truth over love, when they are in conflict, they tend to become defensive or aggressive. They're the ones that, if you were to use an animal, they're the ones who are lions in conflict. They just keep attacking, and they keep going, and they don't stop. They either get, and so they they go after, and they're aggressive, or if you come after them, they get defensive, and then what do we know about a a cornered animal that's defensive? They lash out. So for some of us in this room, this is us. We're like, we are right-handed approach, and that's not 
that neither one of these is good or neither one of these is the best, I should say. So, but our common response, our innate response, our natural response for some of us in this room is that we are going to emphasize truth over love. We're going to get defensive and aggressive. And this is embodied by Paul who looked at John Mark and said, nope, we're done. The flip side of that, actually, before I go to the flip side of that, another conflict that I experienced in in the high school ministry is I remember there was a a high school student that I was sitting with um, one of the other pastors. He was the pastor of the high school ministry. I was the associate pastor. I was learning. And we had to pull this student aside because we found out that he had marijuana on campus, which was illegal and and was not okay. Um, And so there was this dialogue that they were having between the two of them. And it was this moment in which you know, the way that the pastor I was working with approached it is they were talking, he's like, you can't do this. And he's, you know, the guy was trying to have an argument and the pastor I was working with was getting riled up enough to the point where he just slammed his hand on the table. He says, but you're breaking the law. And at that moment, was that true? Absolutely. He was breaking the law. But at that moment, was there any hope of restoration of a relationship to walk alongside this, this kid? No. Doesn't mean he was wrong to call it out that it was breaking the law, but in that moment, it was emphasizing the truth rather than the potential relationship. And so, again, neither of these options are purely right. I mean, this is the right-handed option. Doesn't mean it's correct. Uh, Neither of these options are fully correct. But that's the first one. The second one is the left-handed approach. This is the one that emphasizes love over truth. This is the one when you have a conflict with someone and, and they say, hey, um... Am I really as, you know, as mean as people say I am? No, I mean, you kind of have like your days sometimes, but normally you're just fine. And the reality is maybe they are. Maybe they are as mean as people think they are, or they have been getting this feedback of, of oh, you know, I, my boss told me that I, I failed in this area and that I got a bad mark in my review, but you think I'm approachable, don't you? I mean, don't you? I mean, don't you? And people are like, yeah, no, super approachable. You're great. You're the bestest. And it's like this moment of sometimes we emphasize the relationship over the truth. We would rather not offend than to call someone up. This is embodied by Barnabas in this chapter, that he came alongside John Mark. And we don't know the whole story. Like I said, we don't hear from him anymore. But in the conflict between Paul and Barnabas, Paul says, this is truth. He left us and we're not going to have anything to do with him. Barnabas says, listen, there's a relationship here. We could still walk alongside him. We, we can maybe, he's, he's not a lost cause, Paul. And, and so he emphasizes this love for Barnabas over the truth. Do we know the conversations he had? No, we don't know what, what happened throughout his journey. We do know more of the story of John Mark, which we'll get to later. And we could see the benefit of this kind of leadership too. But even the left-handed leadership or approach is not the correct way to necessarily do it. Because if we emphasize love over truth and we we want a relationship with people so badly that we fail to speak the truth to them, we aren't really loving them. We're not really caring for them as much as we think we are. People who are left-handed approach, they tend to become evasive or passive in the midst of conflict. Passive in the sense of, oh, I, you know, hopefully this will just work itself out. I'm not going to say anything about it, but hopefully they just know that I'm upset about it. And hopefully they just will, you know, we'll just be fine and kind of sweep it under the rug. Or they come evasive and, and if someone comes after them, they, they respond by, you know, blaming someone else or shifting the worries or shifting the situation to some other person. Well, I mean, I know you're upset at me, but really it's my parents' fault or really it's my, upbr- I mean, whatever it is. 
It's the shifting of blame. So again, this isn't the correct way either. But this is the way that I tend to fall into. I'm more of a left-handed kind of leader. I've had conversations with students and, and it's like, I emphasize and I have this moment like, should I tell them the whole truth? And to my shame and my regret, there are times when I haven't. I was so afraid of offending that I wouldn't be willing to call up in love. And so that's one of the ones that I've struggled with. That's the one that I naturally lean towards. But both of those are not what we want, and both of them are, not, are common, but not the end goal. The uncommon response that we put on your notes there, the uncommon response is not the right-handed approach. It's not the left-handed approach. The uncommon response to conflict is the peacemaking approach. It's speaking the truth in love. It's not negating either one or ignoring either one. It's speaking the truth in love. We see this in Ephesians 4 when Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus. He says that we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, I know you don't have the whole context of that passage, but in those three verses, what do we see? We're like infants. But if we speak the truth in love, we will become more mature. Individually, within our conflicts with one another, as a church being a place in which we can handle conflict. And it's not something to evade or to be passive about, nor is it something to be aggressive and tearing people down about. But this idea we could handle conflict and that we can mediate and get through this and we could grow in so doing, we would grow into maturity in the body that, of Jesus Christ as the head. So in this passage in Acts 15, we actually have to jump up about 20 verses or so, and see that this was embodied by James in this passage. That James is the one that he heard the story. He heard what Paul and Barnabas were bringing up. He heard what Peter was sharing about what happened with Cornelius. And he recognized that, okay, we could be people who stick to just truth and say, okay, nope, they have to follow everything. They have to do everything the way that we did it. And that burden that was upon us is upon Gentiles too. He could have purely done uh, speaking, uh, focusing on love and saying, oh, no, they could do whatever they want. It's going to be totally fine. Like, let's just, you know, they, they love Jesus. We're going to be okay. But he found this balance of speaking the truth in love, of saying there are some things that they should not do, but we're not going to hold them to the burden of everything we had to do that we were unable to do. And so James is the one that he comes in and, and people who are following the peacemaking approach, they seek to be redemptive in the midst of conflict, not defensive or aggressive, not passive or evasive, but redemptive to bringing redemption to a situation in which there is none or to make a way in which there was no way. They seek to be redemptive. And Jim Van Eyprin, another quotation from him that I kind of alluded to, but I love this, is that love at the expense of truth is not love. And truth at the expense of love is not truth. In order to truly love someone, we have to speak truly to them. Or else we're not really loving them. But in order for us to be true, 
there has to be an underpinning and a sentiment and a foundation of love. They're like two sides of the same train track. They're two oars in the boat. I mean, they're, they go hand in hand. In order to be peacemakers, we have to speak the truth in love. So in the very bottom of your notes, as we close kind of around this last little part here, is this idea of peacekeeping versus peacemaking. And so peacekeeping focuses on the absence of conflict. This is what happens when, if our girls just start yelling and screaming and we're just kind of like, okay, just, just go into another room. Just everybody, just no more conflict. We just want to have the absence of conflict. But that doesn't mean that the conflict was actually resolved, right? That just means that we wanted there to be a, a false peace, a peace that we feel like is good because we hear the peace of the absence of conflict, but that isn't the end of the story and nor is that the full story of what Jesus did for us when he brought us peace by dying on the cross. It wasn't just the absence of conflict. Jim Van Eyperen says, peacekeeping is passive and reactive. Peacekeepers often make the problem worse by enabling or ignoring sin in order to make the problem go away. By saying, okay, if I just don't deal with this and it's not going to bother them, it's not going to bother me, I'm not going to be a bother. Peacekeepers don't want to be a bother. Peacemakers recognize that by being a bother, we're able to be built up. So peacekeeping is something that we all, that my, this is what I would naturally fall towards in my whole life, would be a peacekeeper for so long. Pete Scazzaro writes this in Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. He says, Jesus shows us that healthy Christians do not avoid conflict. His life was filled with it. He was in regular conflict with religious leaders, the crowds, the disciples, even his own family. But out of a desire to bring true peace, Jesus disrupted the false peace all around him. That in order for there to be a true redemption through the conflict, he had to get rid of the idea of peace just being an absence of conflict. That when we face conflict, and, and whether it's with other brothers and sisters in the Lord, whether it's our family, friends, coworkers, whatever it may be, conflict is normal. It's common. But if we enter into that as being right-handed or left-handed and failing to see that peacemaking is both of one of the same, it's connecting the two, it's hand in hand, and it's a holistic idea. And so peacekeeping focuses on the absence of conflict. Peacemaking focuses on the redemption through the conflict. That many believers, as Jim Van Eyperen says, believe, many believers in churches confuse peacemaking with peacekeeping. Peacemaking is active and proactive. The peacemaker is committed to speaking the truth in love, to repenting, forgiving, and restoring. This is a biblical, redemptive response to conflict. He continues on and says, Reconciling peace is made, not kept. Biblical peace is generative and life-giving. God calls the church into his redemptive process. So this is part of why church is so important. This is part of why, again, not the four walls in a building, but this idea of being plugged into the people and the purpose of the church. Because by being in community, by having people hold us accountable, by having people come alongside us, by sometimes having conflict, but recognizing that we can see redemption through the conflict, this is how we are being shaped and made and renewed. This is how we are able to become the men and women and young adults and kids that God has called us to become to be a light wherever he has us. This is what makes us 
be able to get mature and not just be like infants who are thrown off by everything, but as Ephesians 4 says, this is what allows us to be matured into the body of Christ, which is Christ as the head. So we see this, that at the end of Paul's life, we see that there was a restoration at some point with him and John Mark. We see that he had said when he was on his deathbed, he said, please bring John Mark to me. He, he is a benefit to me in my ministry. And that there was a resolution to this conflict at some point. But we also, we see that there was that, that was good. But we also see that had Barnabas purely left John Mark to himself or, or not brought him under his wing, John Mark became someone that is traditionally known as the author of the gospel of Mark. That the earliest gospel, by many commentators' perspectives, Mark being the earliest one, by ma- the first gospel was written by a man that could have just been written off by Paul had he not had someone come alongside him. So we see that both sides may have their validity, but both sides are not whole. They need truth and love together. And so as we close this morning, as, as you kind of take some moments to, to process this, it's Questions just for you to process. Are you more right-handed or left-handed in your common response to conflict? When, I, when you heard me describe those, many of you probably were just like, yep, that's me, either way. And if you're right-handed, you probably would have raised your hand because it's truth, and if you're left-handed, like, oh, I don't want to offend anyone. But <laughs> this idea of that would be, you would know right away, okay, that's me, that's how I respond to conflict. If the lion is the right-handed approach, the turtle is the left-handed approach. He wants to reserve, wants to hide in the shell, and wants to pretend that nothing's going on. So are you more of a lion or a turtle? And if you're married or whoever you're in a relationship with, whether it's work, friends, students, coworkers, whatever it is, recognizing which one you are and recognizing the one the other one is, because if you get a lion and a turtle together, then it has these ramifications where one, the lion's always going to want to attack, the turtle's always going to want to retreat, and the conflict will never get resolved. And so the turtle pokes their head out, and the lion retracts its claws, and you're able to have a conversation. Then we see this idea of, are you more right-handed or left-handed in your common response? Another one, maybe a tougher one. What conflict are you experiencing today? When I mention conflicts, many of you probably could pop up, yep, that's who it is. That's the one that I have conflict with right now. And you're hearing this and hoping that, oh, this could maybe be some good information. I hope I don't have to do anything about it. (laughs) But today, what conflict are you facing? What would it take to ignore your natural common impulses to be a right-handed responder? What would it take maybe to ignore your common natural responses to be a left-handed responder? And what would it look like for you to approach this conflict as a peacemaker? What would it look like to speak the truth in love? Hey, you know what? This conflict has been really tough for me. I've been really hurt by some of the things you said, but guess what? I recognize I've hurt you in a lot of ways too. Will you forgive me for that? And and maybe recognize that for us, we're not responsible for people's responses to our reaching out. Like, I can't control if I have conflict with someone, how they're going to respond, right? But as Romans 12 talks about, as much as it is up to us, be at peace with everyone. So as far as it is up to us, who do we need to make peace with this morning?
this week. You know, that story I shared at the beginning, this, this girl, it was a really rough couple of years. And she would call into the office at my previous church and she would, you know, hey, I'm frustrated about something. And I would take a few, time, a few minutes to talk to her. And then she moved out of the area into Idaho and she would start calling me once a month, just ask for prayer. And then she responded one day and, and she just shared, you know what? I am so sorry to you and Steph that as she grew up, she recognized I was horrible to you guys. But thank you for never leaving me. Thank you for telling me what I needed to hear, but doing so in love. Thank you for just being an example of what that looks like. And I wish that that's one story I could share. There's a multitude of others in which I've not done this right. So I don't come up here with a mic strapped to my face as the professor and the knower of all things conflict. But I do know, especially in this season as we're continuing our journey together as a church, that for us to become the mature and continue to grow in maturity as a church, this is an area that we're going to need to work on. Individually with one another, holistically as a church when we face conflict, but as we do, we can be matured and grow into the body of Christ as God wants us to. That Jim Van Iper, in the closing quotation he has here, says, the, area, the, arena, I'm sorry, the arena of living out our call to truth and love is the church, God's people. The church is the only place in the world where the truth and love of Christ can lead to shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, which literally means wholeness. That peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is this idea of shalom, it's wholeness, it's redemption through the conflict so that instead of being fractured, we can now be made whole again. And then as we are being made whole, we will be able to be a light in a dark place, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. People that will recognize, why are you handling conflict so well? How are you doing this? And it's this idea of being able to acknowledge that, listen, I can be right-handed, I can be left-handed, but I would rather be a peacemaker, be committed to speaking the truth and love and repentance and restoration and redemptive understanding of what conflict looks like. So as the church, we, you and I, must be a redemptive force in this world filled with conflict. I read recently uh, uh, people commenting and wondering whether America now is more divided than it has ever been since the Civil War. That we are ripe with conflict in our culture, in our workplaces, in our lives, in our families. But you and I, we must be a redemptive force as the church. And that starts with us individually in our moments of conflict, in those moments where we recognize we must be peacemakers. And what would it look like for us to have true, biblical, redemptive conflict resolution in our lives, in every area of our lives? Yeah, it's gonna be tough. And yeah, there's gonna be hard conversations. But it is absolutely worth it. Because Jesus, he didn't just want the absence of conflict when it came to where we were and where God was and where the chasm that separated us. It wasn't just, oh, I just, I just hope there wasn't, there's not an issue. There is redemption through that conflict that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and that we can receive eternal life through him and receive redemption through the conflict of the Savior who knew no sin, who became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. 
And it's about the redemption through the conflict that we've already experienced, those of us who know Jesus. And that's how we can be more and more like Jesus, to spread that kind of peacemaking approach to conflict. Because it's by his wounds that we received our peace. Father, we thank you so much for this day, Lord. And I pray that as we talk through this idea that although conflict is common, Lord, we see it everywhere. May our response to conflict be uncommon. May we strive to be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers. May we be people who go into a place where it seems like there is no way to have conflict resolution and we would make a way because Jesus, when there was no way for us to have a right relationship with God on our own, you made a way. May we be peacemakers like you. I pray that you would stir within us the areas in which maybe we fall short, that you would bring to mind through the Holy Spirit, through your, your whispers and through your speaking, the person with whom we need to address things with, the person with whom we need to ask forgiveness, and the person with whom we need to, as far as it is up to us, to be at peace with. So God, we pray that you would stir our hearts, may you work in our lives, and we thank you that you are our God who is greater and worthy of all of our praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.